Welcome to the Energetics Exchange podcast, conversations with energy and climate experts. Please note that the information and commentary in this podcast is of a general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular individual or business. Listeners should not rely upon the content in this podcast without first seeking advice from a professional. Hello and welcome to the Energetics Exchange. I'm Jamie Ayres, Built Environment Leader at Energetics and today's host. With me, I have my colleague and friend, Matt Sprague. Matt is a senior team member at Energetics, uh, an energy and climate expert, and he provides technical and strategic advice to some of Australia's largest energy users. As a special guest today, we are joined by AMP Capital's Head of Sustainability, Chris Nunn. AMP Capital has a real estate portfolio of approximately $30 billion, made up of approximately 1,000 shopping centres, offices, and industrial assets across Australia and New Zealand. Chris has 20 years of experience in sustainability with expertise in environmental law, rating systems, strategy and reporting, and green building design. This level of experience from both Matt and Chris makes them well-placed to comment on today's topic of net zero pathways. Chris, Matt, welcome. Thank you. Hi, Jamie. Chris, why has AMP adopted a net zero approach? Well, because of climate change. Uh, I think it's the only responsible thing for all corporates to do now is to have a zero carbon target. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. When will you get to zero carbon? So I think that's the only question that corporates have to answer is um, how much pressure do you face from, in our case, your investors and your customers, the tenants, uh, plus the own pressure uh, that you supply from on yourself um, to, to get to zero carbon as the responsible thing to do. And Matt, what's the market position on net zero? At the moment, more and more corporates and organisations across Australia and around the world are looking to set net zero targets. There's a few different approaches, but absolutely more and more people are setting these targets. At the moment in the Australian real estate sector, there's about 19 real estate companies that have set some sort of emissions reduction target, whether they're fully aligned or partially aligned to the climate target set under Paris. And then more government organisations, obviously each of the states and territories have now set a net zero 2050 target and people have set different timeframes around their emissions. The intersection of private and public sector approaches is an interesting one. Chris, how did you approach the target setting process? I think a big part of getting our internal and external stakeholders comfortable with the zero carbon by 2030 target is explaining how much of it is business as usual and us having an overrider to our 2030 zero carbon target that we will strive to achieve that at a cost neutral position relative to current electricity outgoings. And that's been the big comfort factor, I think, for investors, for our customers, for internal stakeholders is this is business as usual. And I guess talking about business as usual, it's worth going into the elements of the the 2030 zero carbon commitment. For us, that means scope one and two. So our scope two, electrical emissions from base building services. Scope one, our direct emissions from gas consumption, diesel, refrigerant leakage. And that we're not, we're excluding deliberately for now scope threes, because that was a big unknown and a big uncertainty bar in the how much I'm going to have to pay to get to zero carbon. So in excluding scope three, that helped everyone get comfortable because there's a lot of discussion about should landlords take responsibility for tenant emissions, transport to and from site, waste generated by the tenants, water consumption in the site, downstream impacts of of waste disposal. And, and, you know, it's endless. It's absolutely endless. So once you carve off scope three, Scope one and two feels achievable. Then it was about, well, 
100% renewable electricity has to be the foundation of our zero carbon strategy. So 100% uh, renewables by 2030 is, is a big pillar of the zero carbon strategy. Of course, an ongoing commitment to energy efficiency. So we've set the target for all offices to be 5.5 star neighbours based building energy ratings and all shopping centres to be five star neighbours rated by 2030. So we've set a trajectory of improvement across the area weighted portfolio averages for efficiency, but that's ongoing, right? That probably will take 10 years to get there, but that's not going to stop us doing the renewables piece. New developments obviously have to come in at a very high level. So 5.5 star minimum neighbours for offices and five star for shopping centres from 2020. So anything new from now must be at that highest level that we expect it to be in the end game of 2030. That's a really interesting point. With scope two emissions making up the bulk of the challenge for the built environment, how did you go about prioritising action on renewables and efficiency? Yeah, I think I'd preface that with saying how important it was um, for us to analyse our own emissions profile when setting those targets. Before we set all our detailed targets, we established what the biggest elements of the AMP Capital owned real estate were. And as you say, it, scope two is by far the dominant um, emissions source. So we, we worked with energetics actually to develop these excellent waterfall diagrams, which were a really important communication tool early in both setting the targets and understanding where we should focus our effort. And it really showed that the scope two direct emissions from the base building electricity was more than half of our emissions profile. Um, and then gas and the efficiency improvements that we could achieve from ongoing neighbours improvements was smaller. So gas was perhaps less than 10% um, and the energy efficiency improvements were perhaps less than 25%. But the large bulk of it was these scope twos and that was the real opportunity and that directed our attention to procurement of electricity, 100% renewable electricity, largely through PPAs as the primary focus of of our zero carbon strategy in the short term. Of course, the neighbours work has, is ongoing. Um, and of course, so is research around, um, you know, the best way to do offsets and scope threes and tenant engagement. But it really did focus our effort, these waterfall diagrams on scope twos, uh, our direct electricity related emissions being the obvious place to start. And I think that was a bit of a departure from a lot of sustainability thinking has been informed by great work, but um, back in like 2007 with the McKinsey's marginal abatement cost curves that said energy efficiency is the, in buildings, commercial buildings, is the most cost-effective climate change mitigation opportunity. And that was one of the reasons why I got into buildings. It's like, wow, this is a huge opportunity. Just by doing HVAC tuning and, and smart building stuff, we can make a huge difference to climate change in a way that's um, that has short paybacks and is is cost positive ultimately in the in the long run. And you know, me and many people in the built environment sustainability movement have been really motivated by that energy efficiency story. But that's changed uh, with the declining cost of renewables. That has changed significantly, and those cost curves have not tended to be redone. Climate Works did an excellent um, adaptation of the McKinsey's marginal abatement cost curves for Australia. I think it was in 2010. And it still showed the same sort of thing, that it, building efficiency was was right over there on the left in terms of the most cost-effective, bang-for-buck things you can do. And purchasing renewables at that time was still relatively expensive. Uh, and I think that's one of the key messages we need to get out there is 
that is rapidly changing with the deployment cost of solar in particular, uh, and that PPAs now can be bought um, from, you know, a one to two year time horizon. You can enter a PPA that is the same cost as your costs of procuring black power through the grid. You can, I mean, we've done a lot of analysis recently on costs of PPAs and the various providers and the contract terms and the various risk profiles of the different structures and we are all over PPAs, but the big thing is the price. And for us, we've got that massive overrider on our zero carbon strategy that we want to do this in a way that is actually responsible. Ultimately, we're a funds manager. We hold money on behalf of investors who expect a return. I think Chris's point around the short-term options for LGC only is, is really interesting for a lot of organizations at the moment. People are potentially hesitant around signing seven to 12-year electricity contracts with a renewable project, just bearing in mind they don't know what the market's going to do in 12 years' time. So they might be at a loss at that point in future, even though it's a great deal now. So people are starting to look at alternative renewable procurement methodologies, including short-term LGC procurement based on an annual consumption volume or looking at LGC-only offtake agreements for three to seven years of LGCs only from a, a renewable project. So there's different alternatives, there's different options for corporates out there now. And understanding which option suits you, your investors and your stakeholders is really key to making those pretty big decisions, really. And we're seeing LGC prices coming down significantly over the last two years from a high of about 80 or $90 a certificate. They're now around about the $30 mark. And in the next couple of years, we're seeing them you know, closer to the $10 mark. So that is opening up lots of other options and avenues for people to procure electricity, as Chris said, close to BAU, potentially a minor uplift, but potentially uh, cost neutral or even cost positive. Cost neutral or cost positive abatement represents a real win-win. So moving on, Chris, how are AMP abating residual emissions associated with gas consumption and other non-renewable sources? Well, I think the first thing I'd say is that it's probably a small component. And when we did those waterfall diagrams with energetics back in 2017, we were all surprised, I think, how small the scope ones were, um, because you expect there to be more gas. And um, for most of our assets, we do have geographic diversification. There are quite a lot of Melbourne assets who use typically more gas for heating. And, and yet, uh, the scope ones were typically about 10% of our total emissions profile um, across the portfolio. So I think that's the first thing to say is you'd be surprised how small they are. And then when you actually go out and price what it costs to get offsets for that amount, it's cheap. And so that's reassuring and that that's a source of comfort. And, and then you turn to, well, what is a responsible offsetting strategy for those residual scope one emissions? And the negative perception around offsets have been that it's been seen as a, as a cheap way of buying your way out of a problem. And I think there's a, there's a need for corporates doing voluntary zero carbon commitments to counter that through their choice of offsets. So inter cheap international offsets now have a relatively poor reputation in Australia. Um, I mean, you can still buy international offsets at the sort of three, four, five dollar a ton mark. Uh, and historically it was lower. It was one to two dollars a ton. And but now I think the, the responsible way to get to zero carbon for an Australian real estate company is scope to domestic renewables through a PPA and then scope ones 
nature-based, domestic nature-based offsets. Because we want to really reserve the electricity-related emissions, the, the renewables uh, emissions reductions, you know, evidence, evidence through RECs and other electricity-related carbon credits for scope twos, for electricity. You should be using zero-carbon electricity to offset your scope two electrical demand and then for scope ones, where it's direct emissions from gas and diesel and refrigerants, then you can turn to, to other options. You don't want to eat up the renewables capacity in the grid um, or in the carbon market for, you know, other people will need those renewables. Across the economy, we'll need those recs for everyone's electrical. And there's only that so much renewable energy so far. I mean, we can incentivize more investment, but um, so reserve the, reserve the renewables credits for scope twos and then look at domestic nature base for scope ones. And, you know, we've got an interesting approach to that in that um, we're, we're sourcing pricing on domestic uh, nature based credits. And that tends to be, I think today in the 20 to $25 a tonne mark. But the outlook I think is that it'll be a bit higher, perhaps 25 to 30 in the near term and then 30 plus in the longer term dollars a tonne for domestic nature based offset. So it's substantially more expensive than the sort of average five, a ton that you can get um, from other sources and yet it's the right thing to do because of all the additionality we're also facing a biodiversity crisis and leveraging some of your scope one costs for biodiversity preservation at the same time as you're getting a carbon benefit is really a big part of our strategy because biodiversity is one of our other pillars of our 2030 sustainability strategy we've made a commitment to by a conservation reserve that is the equivalent in area to our entire real estate footprint. Four million square metres or 400 hectares is our current real estate footprint and we want to directly own and manage a high value conservation reserve that can compensate for the historical impacts of our footprint. And that's a biodiversity-led initiative. But through that, we can also potentially self-generate a reasonable amount of carbon credits that we hope to use for our scope one offsetting strategy. So that's how we'd like to see it going in the long term is that corporates are using their scope one liability to do other great things. Uh, and so they focus on the additionality that those domestic offsets can bring, whether that's, you know, uh, preserving Aboriginal culture by using um, savannah birding credits um, in the Northern Territory or, you know, land restoration in, you know, northern New South Wales where land clearing is absolutely rampant uh, or agricultural degradation through historical farming practices has left, you know, areas affected by salt and, um, you know, really not arable anymore. Well, we can use our carbon credits responsibly in Australia to get these great outcomes and I think that's what we'd like to achieve as well. Your point about additionality there is absolutely key. Having an offset strategy that identifies sources of offsets which have a fully auditable trail and then having a clear retirement of those offsets into a registry is, is key to ensure that stakeholders and investors can see where they've gone and how they're retired so that they're not double counted or, or used twice or unsold is, is important to ensure and safeguard organizations reputational risks i think as you said you can buy cheap international offsets with a poor reputation and i think as stakeholders and, and boards become more educated around sustainability and climate risk practices they become uh, more critical about the use of those offsets and the sources of them and they'll they'll start to pull you up if you're using cheaper offsets which aren't domestic based which aren't appropriate and which aren't audited properly then you'll have a poor reputation yourself as an organization 
organizations. So targeting domestic certificates is probably a good strategy. And then having a, an offset strategy, which aligns with your corporate goals and your corporate objectives as well. So you know, if you're a land-based company and you, you want to do land-based certificates to tell that co-benefit story, or if you're a marine operator and you want to invest in blue card and credits because that's the environment that you operate in, that makes a lot of sense. So having those co-benefits as well as the additionality is really key to having a strong offset strategy towards 2030. And I think the other thing to consider is as we go forwards towards 2030, when people are setting these targets, the demand on offsets is only going to increase. The supply might not necessarily be able to keep up in the short term. So having a long-term strategy or whether you want to start hedging offsets now to be able to retire in future years, or whether you're going to ride the price wave to compensate for that supply and demand balance is going to be an important factor as well to the overall cost of a net zero strategy. And I think there's a great linkage there between how we create a narrative which is fit for purpose, but is also honest. Chris, how has AMB Capital Real Estate communicated its net zero commitment and how has it been received? We use it in both ways. I think uh, internally, staff are really motivated by the biodiversity piece and they really like that. Um, Yes, we have historically been part of an industry that's converted biodiverse bushland into driveways and you know foundations and I mean we're all part of that story is that that is urbanization and let's be honest about that externally I think I've been surprised at how welcomely received that biodiversity story is by our investors um, because when I was formulating that strategy for me it was arguably the most ambitious and the most the biggest logical leap for people to make that you know a, a city-based um, property company, should take direct responsibility for what's happening uh, in the bush. Uh, Well, people do respond to that. People are aware of the biodiversity crisis and the land clearing crisis in Australia. So uh, I've been pleasantly surprised at how welcomely received that initiative has been among our investor community. So the net zero journey is an evolving one. What's next for AMP Capital Real Estate on energy and emissions? Well, in our targets, we've set 2040 as the date to have fully offset relevant scope threes. So that's the latest by which we hope to have done it. But I think we'll incrementally tackle um, scope threes from those which we can, which are most directly attributable to our operational activity and those which we have the greatest degree of control over or, or influence over. Because I think all of scope threes are more in that basket of influence rather than control. And I think there's a there's a pretty agreed position now among the real estate sector. Some scope threes are close enough to control. Um, while there's still some influence in there, you can really take responsibility directly for some of them and we should be offsetting some of those. And so I think we'll see, you know, even us, I think once we do our scope one, scope twos in the next few years, we'll quickly move on to waste and water as the scope three emissions to tackle first. Then I think there's the ongoing question of tenant electricity. There's a lot of work to do in terms of the communications between landlord and tenant organisations about, well, tenants, our scope three tenant emissions are their scope two. And who's going to pick that up? Who's going to pick the bill up for the scope, those emissions that relate to the tenant? electricity consumption. And I think it's universally agreed that that should be the tenant organisations, that they're their scope twos, that they should pay directly for the um, renewables or the offsets, but we can help them with that. 
we can perhaps fold them into a, a PPA arrangement through an embedded network, or we can help them leverage our procurement strategy by advising them or even buying for them. Um, so I think there's there's some ways that we can really help tenants with their um, scope two emissions, our scope three emissions. And that's probably the biggest piece of scope threes is tenant communications, tenant engagement, and agreeing who's going to do the offsetting and who pays and those financial uh, arrangements between the landlord and tenant are something that we really have to work hard on. And then there's embodied carbon, which I think is really interesting. And we've done quite a bit of work on this. Key quarter tower is building at that scale to entirely reuse the concrete core or, or rather retain a substantial component of the concrete core and, and about a third of the decks as well. So it ends up being um, about, you know, 65% of the structure retained. Um, so to 85%, depending on, um, you know, how you calculate it. So it, it's actually a, a pretty big embodied carbon saving. And we've calculated that the embodied carbon saved by retaining the concrete core and decks uh, in Key Quarter Tower is equivalent to more than two years of operational emissions. And that's great. Uh, so, you know, there is a substantial carbon saving through the retention of some of the concrete elements. But I think in the Australian property industry, we are yet to tackle cement substitutes. There's definitely things we can do around steel. Um, recycled content in steel is not yet ubiquitous in the Australian construction industry. And I think the circular economy movement, where we're starting to see those life cycle analyses and, well, what are we going to do with the outputs from recycling centres? Well, we need to be turning that back into useful, domestically constructed, domestically made construction materials that we can then use in our buildings. And I think that's another important part of the scope three emissions is the circular economy dimension to incorporating more recycled content in building materials is something that we as an industry have not done well and we should be honest about that and we need a lot of focus on that. And I think building that embodied carbon um, scope into procurement strategies and procurement documentation when you're selecting suppliers or builders or building materials or whatever it is um, having that as part of your assessment criteria up front and whether you use a shadow carbon price or whether you use alternative scoring criteria to to start challenging your supply chain and influencing um, material selections of new builds or um, renovations i think can also aid in that that influence that you mentioned chris around embodied carbon for purchase goods and services or construction materials thanks chris thanks matt i think this has been a great story of the net zero journey which I guess starts with some deep analysis. Then it really moves on to responsible messaging to bring people along on that journey. I think, Chris, you really expressed that it's important that you speak in the language of those you're speaking to, and whether that be investors or to the public or to people within the industry. And then that view of leadership, getting your own house in order first and then bringing in clients, tenants, and so on. And that's how the world works. That's how we create a, a greater impact more broadly. To everyone listening, if you have any feedback or questions, please email us at info at energetics.com.au. We look forward to you joining us again next week. Energetics Exchange Podcast. Conversations with energy and climate experts.